Welcome to the Leading Past Limits podcast. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of accomplished professionals who have placed service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, an executive coach and the principal at GuideQuest, a leadership coaching company. Join us in this episode featuring senior leadership consultant Elizabeth Schmelzinger. She repeatedly emphasizes the importance of humility, trust, and fostering collaboration and teamwork while sharing some of her most fulfilling leadership experiences. If you're enjoying these episodes, please subscribe so you don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world school of hard knocks. Our guest today is our own Elizabeth Schmelzinger. Liz is a senior leadership consultant at GuideQuest. She has extensive experience leading change and building coalitions, garnered from more than 35 years of experience in customs and border protection and the Department of Homeland Security. Throughout her career, she served in key roles as a customs inspector, import specialist, program manager, chief of staff, and senior leader responsible for coordinating numerous multi-agency border security initiatives. She retired from CBP as the director of the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism, or CTPAT. In that pivotal role, she led the re-engineering effort to update minimum security standards for international supply chains in close partnership with over 11,000 companies encompassing over 50% of importations in the United States. Liz is a dear friend and colleague, and in her capacity as a leadership consultant at GuideQuest, we work together regularly to coach teams of senior leaders and executives in the Fortune 500. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kumar. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I'm so thankful that, you, um, that you're able to, to, to uh, share some of your experiences um, in a demanding career uh, where you achieved uh, quite a bit of success in bringing people together to accomplish things that are important for the security of our country. Um, I'd like to begin with what motivated you to pursue a career with U.S. Customs? That's an interesting uh, question because uh, I was a student aide at the Peace Bridge, the U.S. Customs Office at the Peace Bridge in Buffalo, going to college in Buffalo. And um, I was just fascinated by the technical work that these inspectors were doing. First of all, you know, the general law enforcement work, but but I was in the office. So there was a lot of like importations and um, then there were seizures and they put handcuffs on people and was just fascinated by it. So when I graduated from college, I had sort of asked if it was a possibility that I could, you know, try this, this uh, career. And, you know, they really sort of thought, well, you're not really the law enforcement type and blah, blah, blah. But the reality was I was very eager to learn uh, the craft of being a customs inspector. And it really is a craft, in my opinion. There's a whole set of skill sets that you need to learn and perfect. Um, and then there's a whole set of, you know, obviously laws and regulations that you need to learn. But but the, the it really is an art form to do that job well. And I was very eager to try and do that. So that's what motivated me. What skill would you say uh, makes um, a custom inspector highly successful? If you were going to narrow it down to one or two of the most important qualities, what would you point to? I would I would have to say observation, number one, right? And number two, listening. So mm -hmm. I think that is the skill that I have uh, developed well that is that has really helped me throughout all of my career. But when you're an inspector and you have 30 seconds or a minute to make a determination about, 
you know, goods or people that are coming into the United States, you not only have to listen to their answers, but listen to what isn't there and what maybe should be there, and then put that together really quickly to make that assessment. So I think those are, and of course the observation of what it is you're asking and how that how that plays out in, in that brief interview, you know, those are two of the most important, I think. How do you build those skills? Um, I can tell you how I did it, <laughs> which is kind of funny. I used to, I used to hide in the booth. It wasn't really hide. I couldn't hide myself in the booth, but, but I would go into a booth of what, you know, kind of the, the fellas that were the best. And I would just watch them while they were doing their job. And the first time I did it, you know, they'd say, what are you doing in here? And I'd say, well, I want to learn, want to learn from you. And to be honest with you, at first, you know, they're like, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do this. But they became kind of honored. I think it is an honor to have someone do that. And so, um, you know, I'm not going to embarrass these guys by saying their names, but they know who they are. And and I'm grateful to them because that's how I, that's how I sort of, in addition to all the training you get, self-taught myself, you know, or, or really from watching others. I, I really appreciate, appreciate you sharing that example because... I think that often, you know, we rely on our development like through formal training, which is of course important. Mm. But uh, I know that when people have approached me for mentoring or informal kind of guidance, I mean, I've always been flattered by it. And 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 I like the humility you demonstrated in going to someone and saying, hey, you're one of the best at this. I want to learn from you and see how you're doing it. And I think that's that's probably a resource that isn't used enough by uh, many people at the beginning of their career because they're they're maybe nervous about impinging upon somebody's time or, or something like that well there's you're right there is a sense of humility to say to someone i don't know this well i want to learn but the the best part of that is the i want to learn part and that's yeah. the part i think that's most valuable and so speaking of learning i think some of our um best lessons come from failure so would you would you share an example of when you failed at a, a significant task and uh, and what you learned from it? Well, I you know I it's kind of a it's kind of a funny story, but it's really it's really not funny. So when we relocated from Buffalo to Tucson, I didn't necessarily have an assignment. We we relocated through U.S. Customs. My husband uh, had received you know, a position out there. And so I did not. So um, I had moved out there. I had accepted the position uh, temporarily as uh, the executive assistant for the director of field operations in Tucson, um, which which was a very difficult job for me to do. And actually, I, I failed miserably at it. So, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it was it was not my proudest moment because um, for example, you know, I would say to, uh, and, and I don't want to reveal her name, but she is one of the, the very best people I've learned a ton from in my career. But um, I'd say, well, don't you have a meeting now? And she, she'd look on our calendar and say, well, it's not on my calendar. And I, well, it's on my calendar. <laughs> like I sort of missed the fundamental skill sets there. But um, but it was a learning experience. And thankfully, she quickly moved me back into my area of expertise, which was you know, kind of doing customs things. Um, but I, ugh, it was awful. And I felt terrible because, you know, you sort of think of your, well, this is an easy job to do and it's really not. And what that taught me was the perspective of 
people that that hold those positions really do a lot of very selfless work. It's not about them. It's about making sure that their executive or their leader kind of is on task and prepared. And um, and I think later on, we'll talk about another position I had um, where I had the opportunity to sort of take another crack at that in a larger scale when I was the chief mm -hmm. of staff of Air Marine Operations. And and I was determined then to make it work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. I, you know, I've been really blessed with having good executive assistants and, 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 and staff that have helped me and that we've worked, you know, shoulder to shoulder to get things done. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is, um, I mean, how critical their support is, and especially when they're exercising initiative to, um, to help to kind of shape how information gets to you for decision making how to collaborate or partner with um, your direct reports so that in the end, you know, the, the combined effort is successful and is efficiently produced. Um, you're right. That is like, it's definitely a skill, a unique skill. And I think it points to just how you need a diverse team with, with complementary roles and responsibilities that help to, to ultimately, you know, move forward. What's the uh, what's the saying about John F. Kennedy? He he supposedly spoke to uh, a custodian at uh, NASA and asked him what he was doing, and he said, "I'm putting a man on the moon." I mean, every every, every task person there. is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's very true. Yeah. Well, what what was your uh, most fulfilling experience leading change? So uh, as a follow-on to my biggest failure, <laughs> is, right? Okay. So I think, I think in terms of leading change and doing transformational work, um, in 2008, I was asked to take on the role of chief of staff of the of Air Marine Operations within CBP, and um, I was very sort of hesitant to do this because it was not my organic home right so air and marine operations is is a fantastic office within within cbp their mission is is terrific you know they do all the aviation and maritime patrolling of the borders they support um the border patrol they support field operations they support hsi and um you know it's a very law enforcement branch right, right. i mean it's yeah. it's it is just a very unique skill set and, and a terrific bunch of people. But when I took on the position, um, you know, I've been in headquarters for a bit. I'd been at DHS headquarters and, and at headquarters at CBP and knew how the building worked fairly well. Um, and really what, what I was brought in there to do is to provide some kind of structure and organization to the headquarters office. So, you know, it wasn't mission necessarily in, in terms of operation, but but in order to be effective, I had to learn their mission set, right? And so that is one of the- How did you go the, about that? So I asked everybody. I mean, I read everything. I And, and in, as, as a chief of staff, you had a unique position to sort of see everything as well. So so it was a, um, I had a lot of people help me as well. Um, some of the, the leadership within Air and Marine were terrific in terms of, um, you know, helping me understand the ins and outs of, of what their mission set was. Um, I remember studying little pictures of aircraft so that I would be able to say, <laughs> that's a UH-60 and that's a, a AS-350 helicopter. What Liz, what made that important? Um, because I think, 
I think in order to be relevant, right, in that organization as a leader, and the chief of staff position is a leadership position, that that I had to be credible and I had to speak their language and understand what their mission was about. I didn't have to fly a plane or drive a boat, but I needed to understand what they were going through in order to be effective. And then to help integrate the office structure with the rest of the building, right? So you have field operation. I mean, CBP is the largest law enforcement agency in the country. You can only imagine the nuances of working through headquarter bureaucracy, right? So we, my, my real challenge there was to help them establish processes and, and, organize themselves so that they could effectively, you know, kind of get their voice heard within the building and then kind of just, you know, kind of roll with how all the other offices worked. Um, not something necessarily a pilot or pilot or a boat driver would know how to do. Right. right. So it's unique in that, you know, the perfect person for that position was not necessarily an operator. Right. And, it's and actually I, somebody that understood how the building worked. Right. Right. So, and, and yeah. I think, um, you know, it's a, it is a, it is a characteristic of, of law enforcement agencies, not, not unique to CBP or to HS, uh, to ICE or to any of them that, you know, you take an operator from the field and you give them a headquarters assignment. And then you, you, you sort of think that they transform themselves into this kind of political wonk or policy wonk, and they're able to exist in that environment. And it takes a lot of transition. I mean, it takes a lot of different skills in your brain, you know, not to fly a plane and to write a, an issue paper, right? right? I mean, those are right. two different skill sets. So, so we, um, you know, I, th I think that was at the end of that assignment, which, which ended in 2013, I was very proud of the structure we had built within, within the office. And, uh, the way it it sort of seamlessly was working and ticking along, and and this is how we do business at headquarters in Air Marine. That was a wonderful kind of accomplishment. But I always said there's a there's a shelf life to that position because you come in and you do that transformational change work, and then you're done. Mm -hmm. And if you stay too long, you have to do it again. Mm -hmm. So I th I think there's at least for me there was there was kind of that period of time where I knew it was, it was time for me to move on. Let me, let me, um, if, if you'll indulge me, let me like roll back to the beginning a little bit of when you come in, because I'm, I'm so curious as to like, what were the unique things that made it difficult? You've already mentioned that you didn't basically grow up in the organization or you weren't a boat driver or a pilot. So there's a credibility challenge that you took on to meet. Um, what about in terms of, uh, personalities or um, relationships throughout the organization? Because I know, for example, that pilots can have a, a fair amount of swagger. Um, They're you know, adorable. What, but what I, do, I will say, yeah. yeah, it was a very, very male-dominated organization. And, and that is not uh, intimidating to me, right? Obviously, I've worked in a male-dominated field all my career. But in, in this particular instance, and it's unique, I think, to that uh, to Aaron Marine is that it is male dominant because mostly men become pilots and boat drivers, and so um, they do recruit endlessly for females. But it, you know, for many reasons, it just doesn't always. They're not always successful. We do have some terrific females in the program. Don't get me wrong, but um, there was also, you know, a lot of ex-military 
um, leaders in in the organization, which was new for me, you know, being in law enforcement. I think I, I struggled to be relevant in the sense that I wanted to learn their their mission set. I wanted to be effective for them. I felt like I, w- I was in a position to serve them um, and to, to help them get sort of where they wanted to go. But I think, um, you know, in the course of that, my back grew a little stronger because mm. I refused to um, kind of be dismissed. Does that make sense? It does. What did that look like? Well, you know, I it needed to be appropriate, right? So you can very easily be too pushy in in that role. Um, I think my eagerness to learn was a credit to that and led some credibility to that. Um, and my ability, you know, I made mistakes sometimes and I owned up to them. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not always correct all the time. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you had to, to be to be quiet about it, right? So you, the opportunity to learn and listen was sometimes more important than speaking and being, you know, kind of a part of the meeting. I learned a ton from sitting in their leadership meetings, from hearing them discuss issues and understanding the unique personalities of each other. And I really felt like my role was to, to help them, not necessarily to be, you know, uh, a leader in that organization. Through that process, though, and, and gaining that credibility, you know, I, I really earned a lot of their respect, and I and I treasure that. Um, but it was a very challenging job. Did you ever have? Um, you spoke about being a woman in a male-dominated organization, not not new to you. That had been really your, your entire career. Um, did you ever have to deal with someone that in particular you knew was discriminating against you or being dismissive of you because you were a woman? And if yes. so, how did you how did you manage that? How did you what was your strategy in 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 you know making that relationship more constructive? So so that's not unique. I think the dismissive part is not, it's not unique to women either. Um I'm not entirely sure that that's uh, you know, I don't necessarily think that that is of, of your sexual, you know, orientation. I think it's because at any given moment you, you could have an idea and, and say it or want to present it and it could be dismissed because, you know, you don't have enough experience. You're not this, you're not that. Um, and, and because you are a woman and in particular, you know, I did have some of that, um, I guess I'm just, I'm just stubborn, Kumar. I just, you know, was working very hard to do the right thing. And I did not want to be discredited or dismissed. You know, I think it's important to say this, and I know you and I have talked about this many times. At the end of the day, all you have is your reputation, right? And so if you have a reputation for being honest with integrity and working hard, even if you make mistakes, people appreciate that, you know, that mm-hmm. in, in perfectness of, right. you know, and I think that, that that ultimately was kind of what happened there. I just refused to bend. <laughs> right. Well, as you, I mean, you've hit on a theme. Um, we, uh, we've worked together to deliver, you know, coaching to teams of executives in the Fortune 500. And um, there is this hunger 
for trust and connection and and particularly vulnerability based trust and part of that yeah. is admitting and owning your mistakes um mm -hmm. I, I do think that goes a long way towards uh bringing a team together and really helping them move to higher levels of performance yeah i agree i also think that um one of the elements and that one of the most favorite you know kind of things that we've done with those sessions is watching that team develop into a yeah. cohesive unit right mm -hmm. so i think they people need and and i i looking back on that i think that's you know probably there's some of the executive staff and air marine did sort of uh, appreciate the structure that was put in place and the processes that we put in place because that's form right that's you know the the curbs on the highway if you will um but they also coalesced around having specific you know, mission sets within within that executive office, and and you know, you're you're the communications branch, and you're the congressional affairs folks, and and you're the public affairs folks, and and knowing kind of how that intersects um, was was great structure. What about resistance to change? Did uh, you know how did you bring people along? Because you know, change is hard. A lot of people don't want to, they, they like the status quo. How, how did you bring members of the team along with you? There was one senior executive who was completely resistant to having me walk in his office, go through his, and I mean, notorious for keeping documents in his inbox, like, and never signing them. And people were waiting for them. Not only, and, and this is, in an in, uh, interesting part of CBP. So many times documents went to many offices to get signed off on. So they would sit in this guy's inbox forever. And um, I, I spoke to the, you know, the general who I worked for and said, look, I, this is, this is one of the problems we got to fix. He said, go fix it. So I walked in his office and said, okay, I grabbed his inbox. I went this, 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 you're not going to leave today until you get signed. <laughs> And he looked at me and said, get out of here. I said, okay. So I left the pile on his desk. He walks into the, the general's office, who was our AC, shuts the door. He came out. I had all of those papers done by 530. <laughs> yeah, you neglected so with, with his tail tucked beneath between no, his legs. <laughs> and it wasn't that. It was, it was just the notion that, you know, who is this person now interceding? And, and this process um, needed to happen because there were some people that were resistant. Obviously he was resistant to change, but, but it was a unique little set of circumstances that really now it became before it was kind of a power thing that he could mm -hmm. hold on to these documents. Now it became like, you're the only guy who's not playing this new right. game. Okay. Right. So it's, it's almost like peer pressure, right? right? But you have to build momentum when you're changing things and you have to get people excited about it. Um, and you have to, when it's not working, say, you know what, this isn't working. We'll try something else. And, and I think that's the most important part about, about encouraging people to change is allowing that level of imperfection, right? If it doesn't work, I promise we're going to figure it out. Right? Mm -hmm. And they have to have some comfort level in that. How did you build that at Air and Marine? Um, well, I think, I think. When it didn't work, we actually changed things. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can't remember a specific example, but I do remember there were like a few times when you know we would institute some process and it didn't work, and we'd have to 
go back to the drawing board and do it over again. Um, but I think that's credibility, right? If you're going to be careful with people's time and, and you want them to do it a certain way, you have to make them realize that it's not just going to benefit themselves, but it's going to benefit the entire office. Um, and that, that would be, that would be the key. They have to see that success, right? Yeah. What was the most important, uh, thing that, uh, the assistant commissioner, the general did that helped to enable change? Well, I think in the beginning, you know, when we first met each other, established our relationship and thing, you know, things were bumpy, um, and 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 that's just natural. I think that's a natural part of kind of developing a relationship with another leader. And um, you know, it's not always going to be perfect and smooth, and and that's to be expected. Um, but once I think there was a level of trust there, and he realized that I was learning, I was eager to learn and eager to serve them in that capacity. And was having some success. We got along great, and um, and he really did trust me. And there were a few times when I would ask for his support because things weren't, you know, kind of working the way I wanted them to. And he did support me. Um, you know, I I think it was interesting to watch that evolution um, between the two of us, and then through the rest of his executives, right? So, um, you know, I think I think it's a natural evolution, but I do think there has, one of the key components, and Kumar, you know this, is trust. And you have to be able to trust um, your boss, and your boss has to be able to trust you. And if, if that doesn't gel, then you're just never, it's never going to be, you know, as successful as you would hope. And in your experience, what's the most important component of building that trust with your boss? Honesty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think being honest, oh, you know, I did this great. I didn't do this great. <laughs> you know, I mean, just communicating. And um, you said something though that's interesting, though, because that's that may be counterintuitive to many. But but to be transparent about the mistakes or where you fall short, because that does build trust. Trying to hide it or be defensive. Right, right, right. Is, is counterproductive. Mm -hmm. No, I think I think that's very true. It's very true of me also. Not afraid to say I don't know how to do this, um, and try to learn. And I'm, you know, I'm not successful at, at everything. No one is, but but I do think that's a key component of that. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with not knowing. So you were you were sharing the results. What what came out of out of being able to connect Aaron Marine to the larger CBP enterprise? And, and I, you know what, I think they just felt more at home. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if an organization is a living thing, I talk about it like it's a person. But I think they felt they had, you know, they had a place at the table, of course, organizationally. But they also were aligned. A lot of the things were aligned uh, in a in a better way with the rest of the building, and um, you know, it was it was just it worked very seamlessly. Um, and I was grateful for that because when I left and moved back to field operations within CBP, um, I could see it. Mm -hmm. And that made me happy. So what was your main takeaway from that experience? Um, I think to be brave. And, and I mean that not just, 
you know, in your assignments, but to be brave in life as well. Um, I was very, very intimidated to take that position. I wasn't at all sure that I could be successful at it. Um, but I was brave. And so I t used to tell my children to be brave, you know, not to be afraid to try something new. I had a lot of encouragement, of course. So it wasn't like I just walked in the door and said, hey. Um, but but I think that was, yeah, I mean, that it, that worked out well. And, and it allowed me to be continue to be brave in, in other things. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to 22-year-old Liz at the beginning of her career? I would say know your mission, learn your mission, learn your job, focus on that. There's a lot of distractions, especially obviously when I was 20, 21, when I started Kumar. I was born at Customs Inspector. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, to be honest with you, it is learn your job, learn your craft. Um, always be eager to learn new things uh, and be brave. You know, try new things, try new assignments, um, expose yourself to different things. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help because people will help you. Um, I help people in my career and people help me wonderfully. And I think that's, those are gifts you give each other that is not in your paycheck. It's not in your, uh, on your resume, but those are the real gifts of kind of sharing and growing as a professional in an organization. Um, and, and the, you know, I would, I would tell her that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I agree entirely. And I love the way that you frame that, that feedback as gifts because they are gifts. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they, when we, when we receive information from others, it may, they may be something that we see that we want to apply. Maybe, maybe we don't think the context is right and we don't, but either way, it's a gift. So rather than um, what I encourage clients to do is rather than debate the feedback they get from others, just thank mm. them for the gift it is right. and move forward and move forward. And, and sometimes it's hurtful, right? Yeah. Criticism yeah. is hurtful, but I found that even though it may have stung at the moment and it didn't come across maybe professionally perfectly, you know, you ruminate over it for the next several days and weeks. And, and usually there's some, something that sparks you to grow in a certain way because of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, let me, um, let me turn to a different, uh, leadership challenge. What, what was your most fulfilling experience in building coalitions with others? So this was my favorite assignment. Um, was, you know, in my last assignment is always your hardest and your most favorite, but it really was. So I I had the opportunity to return back to field operations um, and ultimately became, was asked to serve as the acting director of CTPAN, ultimately was given that position. Um, field operations. And to remind the audience, that's the Customs Trade Partnership. Customs Trade Partnership against Terrorism. And I'll tell you what that is. So that particular program was started after 9-11 by Commissioner Bonner, who um, really was an incredible visionary in terms of, you know, and he was he was confirmed as a commissioner on September 11th. Amazing. But he, um, 
He started the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism really in an effort to secure the supply chains of goods that were coming to the United States. Um, the interesting part, part about this program and the evolution of that, um, you know, the World Customs Organization, excuse me, had a, um, a program for compliance, customs compliance. You know, everybody all over the world, everybody wants to get their nickels and dimes, and most custom services still are revenue generating and are directly linked with their uh, what we call the IRS, which is the tax. Uh, agencies in the government. So for, for U.S. Customs, that is that was not the case, right? The IRS is separate from us, but we still did collect an awful lot of revenue. And compliance is a huge component of what Customs does. Make sure that you follow all the laws and regulations, not just written in the Customs regs, but for many other agencies as well. So you can well imagine hundreds of regulations, etc. But after 9-11, there was no element of security. And so Commissioner Bonner went to the, the World Customs Organization and really convinced them that this was, you know, in today's world after 9-11, um, a critical element of, of customs compliance was security as well. So he started uh, CTPAT. And, and the original program was begun with seven very large companies who still exist in the United States today who are still our partners. It's it is the largest public private partnership in in the world with with the government and it was just an honor to be in the position um when I walked in the door. So you you can well imagine uh I took that position in thir 2013 and it was 17 year old program. And it had not really been substantially updated in 17 years. So, so can I ask you then there, so it was that Commissioner Bonner's vision was to actually make it matter? Um, I mean, it, it's, it was already in existence. And then he took it and in earnest looked, met the no, new environment. Oh. No, so the, so the WCO had a program for compliance. Oh, right? okay. So what Commissioner Bonner's vision was to develop a program for security. And so in that program, CTPAT, what he really urged them to do was to develop minimum security criteria for each of the components of uh, the kind of entities that engage in trade. So carriers, importers, exporters, um, different entity types have different unique requirements. And so the minimum security criteria um, that you should meet to be a part of CTPAT, right, is um, for highway carriers, very different set of, of criteria than for an airline. So in that regard, um, you know, just a, kind of a brilliant plan to secure the supply chains of goods coming to the United States. Um, so as CTPAT developed in those 17 years, uh, there was there had been minimum security criteria. The way this works is you apply to be a partner with the with CBP now, then the Customs Service in in CTPAT, and you you fill out all these documents. You fill out a security profile. You tell the government this is what I do. You look at the minimum security criteria and basically describe how you meet meet those criteria. And then the government comes, CBP comes, CTPAT, supply chain specialists come, and they validate what you've put down. So they actually do a visit to your um, facilities. 
overseas um, and, and actually take account of whether or not you meet, meet these particular criteria. So it's a very, um, it's a very transparent program in that you make this claim and then ultimately every four years, um, someone's going to come in and make sure that you're, you're actually doing these things and help you, right? If you're not, if you're having some struggle somewhere, you know, the specialist will in turn provide a report and tell you what you need to do to change that. All this is in law in the Safe Port Act. Um, but when I walked in the door in, in 13, you know, the criteria had been the same for 17 years. So there was a, a need to sort of take a fresh look at the criteria itself, as well as, um, you know, are there new processes? Are, should, should we have different entity types than we do now? Is there a way to link compliance with security internal to CBP in this program so that we don't have two standing you know, kind of stovepipes. Um, so, so off we go on this adventure. And um, to be honest with you, we had a working group of 50 trade members, which sounds horrific, doesn't it? I mean, 50, a working group with 50 people on it. And are these, are these, are they representing associations or are they? They're representing, no, they were all members of CTPAN. So they were okay. all kind of either various and sundry um positions in those companies that were member companies of CTPAN. In addition to that, I worked closely and through the um, Commercial Operations Advisory Committee, the COAC, that was uh, with, stood up, that works with, with CBP and um, all of DHS in the, in the trade space. So it was very difficult to try and harness what it was we needed to do. We knew there were particular areas, right, that needed to be updated, cybersecurity being one of them. If you can well imagine 17 years ago, we didn't have any cyber issues like we had now. So that was a critical glaring uh, item. The other one, as a result of many initiatives within the government, was forced labor. So how can we secure a supply chain from having goods in it that were produced by forced labor? very touchy subjects. In addition, just the notion, right, that companies have partnered with the government for 17 years, and now someone is saying, we're going to add new criteria. Right, right. Very unpopular, right? I yeah. mean, probably. What were, what were the objections you heard? There's, uh, there's always two objections, time and cost with the, you know with the trade and and those are legitimate kumar i mean that was a legitimate concern of mine we could not develop any updates to this program that ended up costing people so much money that they would no longer participate in the program that's not the goal right the goal was to get to a space where and many of these companies at least in the cyber arena were already already had some levels of, of protection, right? Because it's just self-evident, had nothing to do with CTPAT. But, um, but I was very mindful not to create such a burden that we were undoing the work we actually wanted to do. Do you know what I, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, I get it, yeah. So, so it was kind of a fine, a fine line to walk. Um, the other thing, and I, and I will say this because we, we touched on this a little bit before when we were talking about Aaron Marine and just kind of working in general. I was very honest with them when I started. 
like, and they, they all, I mean, this, this particular program is, it's kind of unique. It, it is really well loved by people that are CTPAT members. I mean, they really feel that connectivity with the government in trying to secure their own supply chains. So in that they are doing their role as Americans, um, you know, as, so, as patriots. And Liz, as, as the representatives you are dealing with, where are they positioned within their companies and organizations? You know, what kind so of many, authority do they have right. for you to negotiate with them? So it's interesting because um, when we were formulating this, we had to make sure they were had significant enough authority so that they could make decisions, right, and make, make recommendations. Fortunately, um, it, it was just the the most impressive group of executives I've ever worked with, and it was not always a joy to do this work, but um, but they were where we had disagreements. You know, is where you really had to kind of sit down and figure out where their motivation was and find out what the problem was and see if, in fact, they might be right. You know, doing this could be too expensive. Um, the did, other you find, did, did you actually find an example of that or did, did that come up? So, yeah, I think there were there were lots of them, like yeah. in, in particular where um, where we were kind of instituting requirements for cameras. Right. So mm. an interesting part of CTPAD, and I don't know if this is still true, but it was like 40 percent of CTPAD at the time. And don't don't I was 40 ish, I would say, were small and medium businesses. Right. A hundred employees or less. And those people, you know, especially now during this pandemic, I just, you know, you feel for them. Every penny gets measured in very significant ways. And so uh, to impose a requirement that you have to have a camera system when maybe they don't need a camera system or it's too expensive. And the, and the other ironic part about the camera systems, as everyone likes to talk about, is they have to work. You have to use them, right? It's not that you just go buy a camera system. Here, I have one. You know, it's got to be part of the utility of of how your operations work. So there were there were lots of examples like that where, you know, we may have at initially proposed that that criteria be a must, which means it must be followed in order to be in the program, and then we re we kind of backed off that. Um, uh, for example, it, you know, became a should instead of a must. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it would be great if you could do this. Um, one of the ironic things is that with those camera systems, they have to be used. Okay. So that is a must. If you have one, you have to use it. Um, the other major, major thing that we included uh, in, in the mission set for CTPAT, which was very controversial, were agriculture requirements. And, you know, CBP has a agriculture um mission set that we at the border uh, have agriculture specialists that you know detect bad things bad bugs bad uh, dirt bad things from coming into the united states and and that incorporating that mission set into ctpat really linked together the agriculture mission set with the security mission set and it is it is a security set um i had a lot of arguments and uh, I, you know, I was sleepless nights where people would say a bug is not a terrorist. So the reality of that is I agree with you. However, 
I don't think a you know a farmer of oranges or whatever would agree with you when these bugs come in and ruin their crops. Um, not not I don't mean to make light of that fact, but the reality of CTPAT it does have terrorism terrorism in its name, but it's a security program, yeah. and so you know it it is not just only based on on that terrorist um, threat. There's all sorts of issues with security, so narcotics and and weapons and things like that. All of that, uh, to include theft and things like that. All of all of this program security elements are really driven to protect both, you know, the participant of the program and the United States. And so it really is a win-win. Yeah, well, Liz, what I mean, you obviously led the program and the team. What did you find most personally difficult in or challenging um, in executing your responsibilities? Uh, being the only one, right? So I had great staff, um, but you know, sort of being the pointy end of the spear was was difficult. I think in in kind of leading that work, I had great support from my leadership and in field operations. Um, I don't know if it's good or bad. Um, it actually was a blessing, but the assistant commissioner used to hold the job. <laughs> so, <laughs> never, you know, there's that old adage, never take a job your boss used to have because, yeah. but actually it worked out great. And um, I got a lot of good advice from him and uh, respect him so much. Um, because he allowed me to do this work and really, you know, kind of was monitoring, obviously, uh, how things were going along. But um, it's a terrific program. And and to be honest with you, it, w it took us over two years to do this work. Um, mm -hmm. But I will say, I, I, I don't, I mean, we really overhauled the entire program. We reviewed all the minimum security criteria. I don't know how it could have taken any less time. But the thing that that is um, most important, I think, is that we reached we reached consensus on all of it. So there was not at the end of this work, um, you know, controversy about where we stood or where we were going. And you know, that was, I mean, to me, that was my proudest work was the fact that we had ended that assignment. Everybody, you know, if, if they didn't like it, they could live with it. And that was the most important thing about negotiating, right? You don't have to love it, but can you live with this? And they, they could do all of that. And they knew that we were taking the program and the level of security to the next level. And I think that is significant. So that was so significant. When, when you say reaching consensus and negotiating, it's hard for me to imagine doing that in a group as large as 50. Like, how did you structure that, so, that partnering and that negotiation process, that consensus process? It, it's interesting you say that because it wasn't me. We did have some meetings where there were all 50, 50 work yeah. group members around. And, and sometimes they got a little, a little animated. People got a little emotional. But um, basically, we had broken them down into sections, right, by, mm -hmm. by entity type for CTPAT. And uh, we had weekly calls. And so the structure of how you manage a piece of work that large is really critical. Mm -hmm. The other thing we did was we developed, uh, and I did have some, uh, you know, contract help for this. 
we developed sort of a, a massive um, kind of worksheet so that everybody had, you know, real documents with real words on it that we could look at and say, I like this, I don't like this. So really focusing the work on the words um, became after the emotion, right? That that's always yeah. happens. After the emotion of we're going to redo this program comes the point where they say, okay, well, what are you thinking of? And so yeah. we had to start from, from that point to get to the words to then get to consensus. And by consensus, I don't mean everybody agreed. Um, and I think, um, you know, maybe that's the not, not the correct term, but I think they could live with it. They understood yeah. it. They understood the motivation for it. They understood the requirement. They understood how it was going to be implemented and they could live with that. And so that we, was. We, you and I have worked with teams where we've talked about constructive conflict and the importance of at least and, and commitment, which at least someone may disagree with the ultimate decision, but they need to know that their opinion or their, their perspective has been heard and, and respected and considered. Um, and then you can have commitment. You can move forward uh, as long as they feel they've been they've they've been heard. So, I mean, Kumar, you know this. I I um, studied mediation and alternative dispute resolution and negotiation and all of that wonderful stuff. And really, you know, conflict resolution is really problem solving, right? Mm -hmm. And so, if you take a, a particular set of circumstances and present it to a group, and you allow them the opportunity to work on that, solving that problem. And you allow them to express their emotion and you hear that and acknowledge that. That is very powerful. So I will tell you in, in doing all this work, it would have been very one-sided had CBP just decided to update CTPAT, put all the regulations out there and said, you know, this is it, this is what we have. That's not in the spirit of partnership. It's not what the program is about. So that was not even a consideration. But there is an element of, of problem solving in that when we presented why some of the criteria needed to be updated, it was self-evident, right? That, mm -hmm. that, for example, cybersecurity, which I keep going back to, but, but that's a very obvious one, right? We did not anywhere near have the cyber issues in, in 17 years ago that we had when, in 2013. But they did, they did, or 2015, they did allow us the opportunity to, to hear that, right? And, and acknowledge that. And in many ways, once you get through that point and you're focused on, on the actual issue and solving the problem, they have great ideas to share. And right. in many instances, well, of course, they're much smarter about their supply chain than I am. Right. I know nothing about their supply chain. But they they have nuances and things, you know, added added considerations that we possibly would never have considered. So in, in that regard, I think, um, you know, I, it, it was a negotiation in, in terms of just sort of working through the issues, but it was also... Uh, respectfully asking them to participate in solving this problem. I think that yeah. that was a key component of that. Hmm. The other thing, when we talked about sanctity, right, and we talked about that, um, you know, kind of that sanctity of trust when you are doing some work like this. Uh, one of the things I was advised by counsel, which was very smart early on, was to have the folks sign a non-disclosure agreement. 
Mm -hmm. And the the reason, and the reason for that formality was so that they knew that we were going to have sort of a circle of trust in, in this environment where, you know, you could throw out ideas maybe that weren't the best and, and, you know, it wasn't going to be on the front page of, of the journal of commerce or, you know, American shipper the next day. And, and that really was uh, smart, and I was grateful for that advice because that did help everyone learn to trust each other in in that working group. Hmm. That's interesting. I would never have thought of that, but it does. It's, I mean, that that's a basic principle of getting full engagement of people is to have mm-hmm. some sort of element of confidentiality or um, right. I mean, you can yeah. ask for it, but yeah, right, right, right. But this gives you even more assurance. Yeah, that was well. So you you've been in high pressure jobs throughout your career, how do you take care of yourself? How do you maintain your resilience? Um, so, you know, life is difficult. I think everyone in life, you know, you have blessings and curses and tragedies and joys and, um, you know, how, how you, how you kind of, resolve to um, survive. For me personally, um, you know, I have a very deep faith and I think that, um, you know, throughout all the struggles and joys in my life, I have always been grateful that, that I have that because I think that's a source of strength. I also have um, just a terrific family. I have great support from a wonderful husband and, and, We've been blessed with great kids. I, um, you know, I think that the key to my personal resilience, I don't take myself too seriously, which I know you know. (laughs) I have great friends. Um, And and I, to be honest with you, I I don't ruminate too much over kind of what's happened, right? So I think, um, if you're at least professionally, if you if you do something, you make a mistake, learn the lesson and move on. I mean, there's always more work to do. So um, for me, I was just not afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I did fail, I wasn't afraid to say, well, <laughs> I blew that one. <laughs> um, to be honest with you, I, I laugh now about the, the DFO in Tucson, but we became great friends and uh, I treasure her friendship. And one of the reasons that I think we became friends is because I was so unabashedly honest about, I stink at this. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, it, it's about being just who you are and you should never right. be afraid to, to be real with people. I have found more than not that, um, that people appreciate honesty and they appreciate candor and they appreciate vulnerability in others. And um, that is helpful to get you through if it's a struggle or a, you know, a particular challenge at work, um, you know, saying those words out loud, this is difficult. I'm having a hard time doing this. Um, People that, you know, are most successful, I think, are the ones that really kind of do that. Yeah. So somewhat related to resilience, and I have to ask, because I, I believe anyway, there is still somewhat of a, um, uh, a double standard or greater expectations 
of uh, working professionals that are also moms and 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 spouses. And because um, I, I can I, I personally witnessed the pressure on some of the senior executives that were my direct reports that in in one case is overseeing, you know, 6000 special agents in the field. But at the end of a 12 hour day is still going home and handling the home duties and the kids are coming to her to resolve challenges yeah. and everything else. How do you how did you handle um, work life balance or integration in what are frequently, you know, all consuming professions? Um, well, I can tell you what I always answer the phone when my children call. So that was a rule. If I mean, uh, when they got older, of course, that wasn't um, that wasn't it. But I, I, you know, I've been blessed with a wonderful partner and in my husband. And uh, while he worked a lot of hours and was gone a lot, I had my own kind of, you know, pressures and whatnot. And um, the kids want, are very resilient. Children are very resilient. But when we were home. And I, I mean, when they were very young, Kumar, I, did, I worked part time. You know, customs was very, very good to me um, in terms of being allowing me to do that. But um, you know, when they were older and teenagers, and kind of that's when when they need you in ways that isn't just let's turn on a video or let's make popcorn or whatever. Um, you know, that there were times when I would come home tired, really tired, and just kind of. Um, but I, you know, I'd look at their little faces and say, okay, what's wrong? You know, um, you just, you get through it. And I think my children are resilient. Um, I guess because they see that as an example. Um, it's, it's not fair. Right. Um, but, but children want, um, you know, they want who they want. They don't, they don't always want mom. You think about single parents, right. Who have those positions. I mean, it's not, we were blessed to be together and have a partner, but there's a lot of single moms that have worked, um, you know, 12 hour days and went home and did it all. And you just tired sometimes. I think you just get tired. I look back at that time now, Kumar, and I wonder how I managed to cook dinner and get laundry done. <laughs> and like, I really, <laughs> and I watch my nieces now who are working and have children and, you know, have important jobs. And, you know, I just say to them, you will look back at this time in your life. And this is the most special time when the kids are little and you're doing all this craziness. So enjoy it. You know, leave the dishes in the sink. If, if you get the chance to watch a movie, um, right. you know, so the, I mean, those things, I think, having gone through that and, and my mother worked too. So I had a good example. Um, but it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Liz, thank you so much for, uh, sharing so much of your, uh, experiences with us today. Um, it particularly resonated with me. You kept coming back to, to trust and, um, well, trust and, and, and transparency seem to be, I think, the themes that were kind of running through much of your remarks. Uh, uh, thank you for being a dear friend and colleague. I, I absolutely enjoy working with you and learning from you. And um, yeah, I, thank you. Oh, Kumar, you're the best. This was fun. I hope, I hope people, you know, get something out of it. And I certainly enjoy our work together. I think it's important. Um, yeah. And I always look forward to spending time with you.
We'll take care. All right, you too.